people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking to the one and only George Stevens Jr. He has a new book coming out called My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. It is a fascinating book. He's a very interesting man. We just barely scratched the surface as we talked for eh, maybe half an hour or so. Got to recommend this book. Definitely check it out if you want to read about a very fascinating life. Mr. Stevens, super nice guy. Hope you enjoy this interview. Well, obviously, I want to ask you about your new book that's coming out. But before that, can I ask you a little bit about you know you growing up and especially growing up in the, the business and show business? I was born in the Hollywood Hospital for openers. And my father, of course, uh, was... Uh, then a young film director. Uh, but three of my grandparents were actors, his parents and my mother's mother. And my great grandmother was an, a wonderful actress in San Francisco, born just after the Civil War and into the 20th century. And she is the youngest Ophelia to Edwin Booth's Hamlet, the greatest Shakespearean actor. And she was the one who started five generations of the Stevens family in show business. So I grew up, I like to think, a rather normal childhood, um, not too close to the movie industry. We lived in Toluca Lake, just in North Hollywood. Then my, my father went to war when I was 10, 11, um, was gone for three years, came back, and uh, I became attracted to what he was doing. And uh, before I knew it, I was uh, what I sometimes used to jokingly say, set on my path, uh, working to become and remain the second best film director in my family. And I became a director doing Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Peter Gunn, working with Jack Webb, and then went, went back to work with my father on the Diary of Anne Frank. And I was his associate producer, and I ended up directing all the location scenes in Amsterdam, which was unusual for him to turn that over to someone else. And we were working on the greatest story ever told, his next picture, and Edward R. Murrow came into my life. As your audience knows, probably the one of the, maybe the greatest American broadcaster uh, during World War II and on CBS, challenged Joe McCarthy. President Kennedy appointed him to run the United States Information Agency, the agency that tells America's story abroad, or did. And so Ed went to Washington with Kennedy, and we had a kind of a coincidental meeting. He was in Hollywood, and he asked me to come back and run the motion picture division of USIA, I was 29 years old, and I told him I couldn't do it because I was committed to my father. 
And I was like his partner now, and I felt I couldn't leave him. A couple of days later, Dad and I are walking on the 20th Century Fox lot to lunch, and Murrow comes up, and I hadn't told him about it, and I told him about it. And he looked at me, and he said, I think you may have to do it. And it was a father looking beyond his own self-interest to see what might be an important opportunity, a new opportunity for his son. And it was a life-changing experience. And that took me to Washington in the Kennedy years and then the starting of the AFI. And I was one of the first bi-coastal people. So 29 years old, you're getting this opportunity. How old were you when you started to actually direct? I mean, when you're doing those Alfred Hitchcocks and Peter Gunn, when, how old were you? I went to work for Jack Webb, who was this fabulous guy who was both the director and the star of Dragnet, and he also made movies. And I was kind of an assistant to Jack. He saw promise in me, and he let me direct a pilot for his Mark 7 Limited television company. And then he let me direct one of the shows. And pretty soon I was not a full-time director because I was working my father doing other things. But I had that opportunity to direct those top shows. Yeah, I turned 30 my second month in Washington. I imagine that you got to meet President Kennedy. Oh, indeed. Mike, that was such an amazing period of time the new frontier, people said, and I think it is true then and now, it was the most exciting time to be in Washington in the government. There were a lot of young people. Uh, The attorney general, Robert Kennedy, was 35 or 36. The president was 42. There were a bunch of, a number of 30 and 32-year-olds like me and Ted Sorensen and Bill Moyers and And the aspiration uh, that Kennedy induced and the humor and the sense of purpose, it was a a great time. What were your duties when you were working at the USIA? We made 300 or more documentaries every year for showing abroad, telling America's story overseas. Our films were not to be shown in the United States, lest the administration in power use those resources to propagandize the American people, that they were shown in a hundred countries abroad. The first film I made at USIA was of Jacqueline Kennedy's trip to India and Pakistan. And it was an idea that I had told Murrow about before I even knew I was, I'd actually proposed it to him, not knowing him by mail. And we made actually two films, Invitation to India and Invitation to Pakistan, and then a combined one called Jacqueline Kennedy's Asian Journey, because India and Pakistan were not friendly and they needed separate films. When we finished it, I received a beautiful scrolled invitation at the White House to a screening at eight eight o'clock at the White House. I'd become friendly with the social secretary Pamela Chernure to Jackie. And I said, I wonder if there's any chance I could bring my mother. And she said, Kennedy's would love to have your mother. So my mother came from Los Angeles. We went and Ed Murrow had been there for dinner with the president and first lady 
and the Indian ambassador before the screening. And I guess it was about 20 of Assad in the White House screening room. And in those days, it was set up with this kind of a, a long theater, uh, I'd say about 15 rows of chairs. And in the front row were two big, comfortable armchairs on either side and a rocking chair at the center. So we screened Invitation to India that night for the president and Mrs. Kennedy. And she was enchanting in this film. It was a great success and a great success abroad. That was within, I think, two months of having arrived in Washington. So I was off to a fast start. Where would these films typically get shown at? In movie theaters as short subjects on the beginnings of television then and in USIA libraries overseas and on mobile units. I went to Africa and traveled around Africa and went out into the bush uh, where we'd go and with a jeep and a screen and they'd set it up and people would gather just out in the bush and watch our movies. I know you also had a hand in, if not being responsible for the AFI, and I'm curious how you went from the USIA to the AFI. Sorry to throw so many letters out there. Yes, well, it's, it was a government does have its acronyms. I was very inspired by President Kennedy. He, he had a gift and he, he spoke about the arts. He said, I look forward to an America that will not be afraid of grace and beauty, that will reward achievement in the arts the way we recognize achievement in business and statecraft, which later gave me the idea for the Kennedy Center Honors. There's no acronym there. He had, and I had become not close to him, but acquainted with him. And he knew who I was. And 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 Murrow and I have been discussing with him ways to elevate the film medium. One of my sort of missions in life has been to speak for equal standing for motion pictures with the other arts. And back in the 60s, movies weren't really right there among the arts. You know, there was the movies and there were people who would say, well, you know, I, I really never go to the movies. President Kennedy got it. And there was legislation to start the National Endowment for the Arts. That was one of Kennedy's initiatives. And he appointed the first National Arts Council, which would be the governing body of the endowment when the legislation passed. It was eventually in Johnson's time when they appointed the Arts Council, it was Leonard Bernstein and Isaac Stern and Minoru Yamasaki, sculptors and Ralph Ellison, just the great artists. And there, and I had lobbied for there to be people from film, which they would have normally not thought of. And Jack Valenti, who'd become a friend in the Johnson time, asked me for recommendations when I said it should be. And I recommended Stanley Kramer, Gregory Peck, and Fred Zinneman, feeling it would be inappropriate to mention my father. But when the names were announced, Jack Valenti knew who my father was, and it was my father and Gregory Peck, the two people with Bernstein and Isaac Stern, and it was this wonderful group. And they knew what to do about opera and dance and symphonies 
but they didn't know what to do about film. As one of them said, you, you can't give a grant to Warner Brothers. I had been thinking about this and I'd had interns and a young filmmakers program at USIA. And so they, they kind of turned to me and I suggested an American Film Institute. And then after some due process and the National Endowment coming alive, they asked me to uh, run the American Film Institute and I took that on. There are people that are still working today that were graduates of the AFI. And it's just amazing to think that it was such a seedbed for talent, you know, to think of your Paul Schraders, your David Lynch's, your Terrence Malick's. I mean, the luminaries of the business today, all passing through this program that you had a hand in creating. It must feel very nice for you. It's so great to hear you say that because it was quite controversial at the time. I do say it was my idea that we have a Center for Advanced Film Studies, later now called the Conservatory, uh, that would be a bridge between learning, the, the universities, and the profession. And there was some hostility from the film universities and people who thought it was going to be too much Hollywood. We respected Hollywood, and it was in Hollywood, and we called upon the finest directors and all craftsmen to do seminars at the AFI, but we very much were involved in the art of film, which is also a business, but we emphasize the art of film. You know, I interviewed Terry Malick, summer of 1969. David Lynch applied for our independent filmmaker program, and we gave him a $2,000 grant to make a student film, and he made something called The Grandmother, which was not your usual grandmother. David, you know, this open-faced, red-blooded American kid who had this enormous imagination. And then he came to the AFI. And you mentioned Paul Schrader. Paul came at the beginning. We had two categories. Mostly were filmmaker fellows, but we had three research fellows. It was an idea of mine that combining criticism and filmmaking would be nourishing. And it was one of the least good ideas I ever had because it was a, a, a thing of conflict and they resented one another. <laughs> and it, just, it wasn't working. But Paul, who came as a research fellow, became a filmmaker. Um, so there was some validity and validity in the idea. And the happy thing is that it survived and the conservatory is stronger today than it ever was. Interestingly, two years ago, we reached the point where the majority of the fellows are female and it's very diverse and uh, it's stood the test of time. It feels like the end of the 60s, the beginning of the 70s. Not only do you have the independent filmmakers and the studios who are kind of in crisis and turn to more edgy works at the time, it feels like that's around the time that people started to really take filmmaking and film history a lot more serious. And I think you also had a hand in that when it came to people actually writing about film and being able to appreciate older films and the current films at the time. Right. Because the foundation or the cornerstone, as I called it, of the AFI was film preservation. That at the time, less than 15 percent 
of the films that had been made since the beginning, beginning of the century, were preserved and archived. And as you, I'm sure, know, film up until 1948 was on nitrocellulose stock. And later, we now have safety stock, they call it. But film would just just disintegrate in a film can. You'd open these film cans, and it was just this icky mush in there. So we started the what is now known as the AFI Film Collection at the Library of Congress. We joined forces with them, and we provided funding to the huge Library of Congress for staff. And we went out and found the missing films, working with the pioneers, the Museum of Modern Art and George Eastman House. But it was a collaborative effort. And there are now 65,000 movies in the AFI collection in the Library of Congress. So that whole preservation, which was made it possible to see the old films and, and value the traditions. And you know, David Lynch, when he came to AFI, I quote him in my book. He said, I, I get, drove up Sunset Boulevard and came into this Greystone Mansion, this facility we had for the first 12 years in Beverly Hills. And he said there were screenings all the time and the old films and foreign films. And he said it was a candy store just to be able to see all of these great works. And if Frank Capper was coming for a series of seminars, we would run all of Frank Capper's films in the two weeks before. Or if Fellini was coming, we'd run Fellini's films, or Jean Renoir, or George Stevens, or John Huston. We believed that you, you would learn from the filmmakers of the past, and that we had all these great directors and writers and cinematographers production designers coming to talk with the fellows and the filmmakers would come and they were there not to teach them to make films the way they did, but to let them understand the tradition. And Terry Malick was influenced by Kazan. He mentioned my father's film giant to me many times, but he was clearly going in his own direction. And certainly David Lynch was, and certainly Paul Schrader. Paul was very enamored of Japanese films, and he was influenced by the great Japanese directors. Tell me about the Kennedy Center Honors and how that came about. On the 10th anniversary of AFI, importantly, in our early years, Roger L. Stevens, the founding chairman of the Kennedy Center, the founding chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, no relation to me, on the 10th anniversary, he, Roger invited us to come into the AFI because I had written an article in the Washington Post. They had no plans for movies in the Kennedy Center. Again, my mission of getting the movies into the right place. Roger, we had a rather confrontational meeting in the office of the film critic of the Washington Post who thought he'd bring us together. And I made my point and Roger was a rather taciturn man. And he listened to me rather coldly. And I said, the Cinematheque in France and this and this and this. And he looked at me, said, well, he says, if you want a film theater in the Kennedy Center, you're going to have to help me build it. And there began an amazing collaboration with Roger because we moved into the Kennedy Center 
got the film set, theater built. And on AFI's 10th anniversary, we did a television special. We've been doing the AFI Life Achievement Awards, which I started in 1973. And this was 1977. We were on CBS. And I persuaded CBS to do a 10th anniversary special. And we had a White House reception, President Jimmy Carter, where everyone went to the White House, then came over and we did a a program in the Kennedy Center Opera House of the 50 greatest films of all time. And it was a big hit on CBS, very successful. And two days later, I went down to see Roger Stevens. I said, Roger, this is your building and it's the National Cultural Center. I said, you ought to have your own event. And he had an odd way of talking. He says, you have any IDs? And I said, I do have an ID. <laughs> and it was this idea of celebrating America's greatest artists and the performing artists because it was the Center for the Performing Arts. And that's how it began. And we uh, enlisted Jimmy Carter again to have a White House reception. And then we did the first Kennedy Center Honors. It began with that quote from Kennedy in his vibrant voice. I look forward to an America that will not be afraid of grace and beauty, that will honor achievement in the arts the way we honor achievement in business and statecraft. We did that to Aaron Copeland's wonderful theme, Fanfare for the Common Man, and Copeland would later become an honoree. So we were off and running. Well, tell me a little bit about your book. I'm so curious how the decision came about to write this, because this wasn't your first book either. I had done two books before. One was called Conversations with the Great Filmmakers of Hollywood's Golden Age at the American Film Institute. Then a later one, The Next Generation. My father kept everything. He had a place out at Beacon Storage in North Hollywood, which inspired me to make a movie called George Stevens, A Filmmaker's Journey, which was one of the first important or maybe the first important film about a filmmaker, a feature length film, but he kept his Laurel and Hardy scripts. He kept all his business papers, souvenirs from the war, bricks from Hitler's fireplace. I mean, you know, and I just, when I went in this room, I'd been aware of it, but after he died and I went in this room and saw all of this. I'd been familiar with it, film cans and all. I said, here's the evidence of a man's life. So I set out to make this feature-length film. And it also caused me, I've kept my papers, I've kept the photographs. So I had all of these tools at hand. It had been in my mind. I never said, certainly one day I'm going to write a memoir. But finally the time came and I was ready and I did it. And I, I'm frankly, I'm very pleased with it. It travels from those grandparents, great grandparents, I was telling you, into the family. It's the first section. War is the second section. My father had this very interesting war. And I grew up as a, a little boy, kind of wondering if he was ever going to come back. And we corresponded. And he kept all of the letters I sent him. My mother kept all the letters of where he kept them, you know, while he's fighting a war, that they're all there in the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Library. So I have those to refer to. And then 
there's the next section is the movies, which the movies I worked on, which was Shane, A Place in the Sun, Giant, The Diary of Anne Frank. And then there's The New Frontier, which I told you a little about. And then there's the American Film Institute. Then there's After AFI, which I call a creative life. Um, because when I left AFI, I never had a salary from then on. Whatever happened was whatever I did. You know, movies, television, occasional books, a play. And so I tell about those adventures and, and about the seven presidents I've known. And the last chapter section is called The Test of Time, which was something I learned from my father. When we went to the Academy Awards in 1951, he'd been back from the war for a few years, and I went with him and sat with him. My mother and grandmother also came. And I sat next to him and Joseph L. Mankiewicz came out and he read the nominees. John Houston for African Queen, William Wyler for The Desperate Hours, Edia Kazan for A Streetcar Named Desire, Vincent Minnelli for An American in Paris, and George Stevens for A Place in the Sun. And of course, I wouldn't be telling you the story if Mankiewicz hadn't said A Place in the Sun. And I got a squeeze from my father and he went up and he got his first Oscar. But driving home, he was driving the car. He and I were in the front seat, my mother and grandmother in the back seat, and the Oscar was on the seat between us. And I think, I was, I think, 17 or something. And it was an exciting night. And I don't know, maybe he thought I was too excited or whatever. But I'll never forget, he turned to me and kind of looked at me and smiled. And he said, he said, we'll have a better idea what kind of a film this is in about 25 years. You know, for the night you win your Oscar, to have that sense of history and sense of proportion. Of course, Place in the Sun just celebrated its 70th year. So he was selling himself short. But that he said that to me and that somehow I would end up spending an important part of my life preserving films, caring about filmmakers, and in my own work, caring about the test of time and the Kennedy Center Honors, the people who were recognized as the test of time and the AFI Life Achievement Award very much. We refer to it for filmmakers whose work has stood the test of time. That's sort of what the book's about. I am so curious, when it comes to writing a book about yourself, did you have to refresh your memory on things or was it all on lock? Did you have to go back and look into those archives and see, oh, when did this happen? Oh, yeah, you have to. And unfortunately, I, I kept calendars for the last 40 years, loosely with every day, you know, a little something scribbled in and, and files on all the shows. And, and my mother kept the, my grandparents' papers, um, which were so valuable. She was a hoarder of that sort. I had a lot to work with. Did you ever find your memory not matching up with what you then discovered? You know, kind of your own Rashomon? That is terrifying. You know, you, you have it so remembered in your own mind as when it was, and it was a year earlier or a year later. But along with that, I have awfully good recall. You know, so it's a combination. I can't even imagine. I mean, we've only been talking for half an hour. 
And you've taken me from 1938 all the way up to today. And just, it's such the tip of the iceberg. I mean, the stories, I can't wait to read this book just for these stories, because I'm sure you've got so many, you've touched so many different areas of so many different businesses, so many different people. I mean, you've got what, what, seven presidents you've met. I mean, it's just, it's wild, the, the history that you've been a part of. You know, I had the blessing. I was very influenced by President Kennedy and also very influenced by Bob Kennedy, who I was close to, good friends. They had values, you know, a sense of history, a kind of idealism, sense of justice, both from my father, who his films so often have at the center an outsider, going back to Alice Adams and Gunga Dean, if you will, the bugler who wants to be in the regiment and Montgomery Clift and A Place in the Sun and James Dean and in Giant and Shane in a way, Man from Another Place. And in Giant, the um, Hispanics who are not recognized. And so I, both for my father and President Kennedy and the people around him, I am imbued with a sense of this kind of social justice. Many of our films at USIA, the most prominent ones, Nine from Little Rock, about the students at Little Rock High won the Academy Award. So it's been something that's nourished my life and, for me, given it more purpose. Mr. Stevens, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure talking with you. I so enjoyed it. And I must say your questions were very stimulating, as you might sense by my reaction. Where any office boy or young mechanic can be a panic with just a good looking pen. And any barmaid can be a star maid if she dances with or without a fan. Hooray for Hollywood, where you're terrific if you're even good. Where anyone at all from Sophie Lauren to Mame Van Doren is equally understood. Go out and try your luck, you may be Donald Duck, hooray for Hollywood. Where any office boy or young mechanic can be a panic with just a good-looking pan. And any barmaid can be a star maid if she dances with or without a fan. Whoever Hollywood, you may be homely in your neighborhood. But if you think that you can be an actor, go see Max Factor. He'll make your kisser look good. He'll send you off in space. He'll dig this crazy place. 